I'm Sinhara, and welcome to the Black Girl's Guide to Fertility podcast. This show is for all women who are dealing with infertility, but is specifically dedicated to Black women because we have a problem with opening up when it comes to this issue. And I don't want to leave out the men. You guys are welcome here, too. On today's episode, I'm Skyping in Janae Cook, founder of Sisters Surviving Infertility, and I learned of her group through social media after discovering she and others suffer from a disorder called MRKH, which is something I had never heard of before. What is MRKH? So I'm here with Janae Cook, um, and I learned of her through social media. Someone had reached out to me to say that they really enjoyed uh, watching my web series, and from there we started discussing uh, that person's particular condition. They told me that they had something called MRKH, and I had never heard of this condition before. Um, So Janae's here, and she's going to explain exactly what MRKH is. Okay. I want to say first and foremost, thank you for having me. Um, this has like been deeply an amazing journey and I'm glad that I can really like, you know, shed light about it. But yes, um, MRKH is a condition that affects, um, I want to say one in every 5,000 women. The numbers kind of jump between 4,500 and 5,000, but it's still like very, very rare. So it affects the uterus, fallopian tubes, vaginal canal. Let me see. Just pretty much like the development of the reproductive system. Got it. So what that means is the woman can't have a baby. Uh, we don't have a period because, of course, the uterus is what sheds blood, which causes the menstrual cycle. So since we don't have that uterus, we don't have uh, a period. Got it. Teenage years. So as a teenager, a lot of girls are looking forward to getting their cycles and, you know, talking to each other about it. How did you feel um, as a teenager not really know, not knowing what's going on with your body and not getting your cycle? I think for me, I was really confused. A lot of my friends, you know, they got their cycles between 13 and 15. Mm -hmm. So I want to say by 14, I figured something was wrong because I had a dream I couldn't have children. So, um, and the dream just really stood out to me. Like my best friend and I, we still talk about it because I just, it was just so vivid. And so for me, um, I was actually diagnosed at 18. The doctor said, you know, if she doesn't get her period by 18, something's wrong. So um, with that being said, they thought that I was a late bloomer. Mom did too, because my aunt got hers pretty late. But yeah, in the midst of that, I just felt just off. It was just like something just there. Got it. So with MRKH, you don't know, and we talked about this um, before the call, you don't know that you have this particular disorder uh, with the type. So you're type two or type one? Um, type one. So type one pretty much, yeah, type one is pretty much just the missing, you know, organs and whatnot. Like the, just like the basics, the uterus not there, the vaginal canal, um, all of that. Type two affects like, it's different, but it can affect like your spinal cord, your kidneys, your hearing, um, I heard one girl, she was like missing a gallbladder. So I'm pretty much healthy other than just the Marquette symptoms. So with type two, which you don't have, you have type one, but with type two, would you know from birth that you had this disorder or would it still be the same thing? You go through, you um, know, your teenage years, think, you don't get your cycle and then you find out. I think it's just circumstantial. I've met women who were diagnosed as little girls. 
because they had, you know, those other issues. So it just kind of depends on the person because one thing about MRKH is that it affects women differently. I'm just blessed that I didn't have anything, you know, outside of, you know, just the reproductive part. Got it. Okay. Who am I? So once you turn 18 and you've been diagnosed um, with MRKH, how did you feel about your own identity? And then you mentioned going off to college and having to to dilate and then eventually getting surgery and going through insurance companies. How did that all come into play for you and how did you feel about it? Wow. For me, um, I was devastated. Mm -hmm. Like, honestly, like up to the point of getting diagnosed, I had the initial exam. I think I went to maybe three or four doctors and I had like MRI uh, just a whole bunch of different tests. So by the time I was diagnosed, I figured something was wrong because I kept going to specialists, but it was just really like the world just caving in on me. You know, I'm 18. It's my senior year. Um, I just got accepted in the FAMU. So, you know, I literally had my entire life planned out. And I think what really, um, was like damaging to my journey was the fact that my doctor was so blunt about it. Mm. He was pretty much like, you have a mark H, you have a uterus, you can't have kids. Wow. And I swear he literally just stopped there. And my mom and I are looking like, what? Because it's like, <laughs> it was no emotion. It was just kind of like, here are the facts. Yeah. Right. No sensitivity and something like that. It's like, you have to allow the person to digest it. Mm -hmm. And I think the emotional aspect is what doctors really don't consider because their whole thing is, okay, she doesn't have a vagina. And let me explain what that means too, because one thing that the media does is they sensationalize it. We have a vagina. We don't have the vaginal canal. Got it. So the outside, that's, you know, fine. Mm -hmm. But you can't have sex without, you know, dilation or surgery. I know we're going to touch into that. But you can't have, you know, intercourse until you fix that problem, which is when they create the vaginal canal. Because they're essentially just cutting through muscle. But, yeah, so doctors are just so quick to, you know, want to, you know, fix you per se without really trying to you know, address the emotional part and the trauma and the identity and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So that doctor, that particular doctor, did he recommend you go through with dilating or did he recommend you get surgery? How did you get to the point where you said, okay, I'm just going to go for surgery? Um, he did recommend dilation and I'm going to explain that really quickly. Okay. Dilation is a practice where you, it looks kind of like a dildo, but it's like, you know, more so for medical purposes. But the point is to apply pressure to the vaginal opening. And of course, the more pressure you apply, it's going to, you know, form that, that opening. Mm -hmm. So for me, I actually did try dilation, but the set of dilators that I had were like, they were hard plastic. They were really large. And I mean, the doctor's instructions were like, you know, fine, but I think mentally I wasn't there. And of course too, like, you know, I had a, a roommate in college. I didn't have any privacy. So, and one time my roommate actually caught me dilating. She didn't know, wow. but <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I remember, you know, luckily I had my legs up and I had like the covers over me in a book, but obviously underneath the sheets, like, you know, I was trying to dilate. So after that, I was petrified. I called my mom and I want to say like maybe two years later, we decided to have the surgery. So the surgery I had is called the Vecchi Eddy procedure. I think it's how you pronounce it. They pretty much, the way it was described to me, they placed this, okay, I'm trying to explain from the beginning. They take what looks like maybe 
mm, I'm trying to think of something that's small enough, like a gumball, like a large gumball. And there's like a needle coming through both ends. So they place that at the opening of the vaginal canal and they attach it to like two strings that's attached to this device. It's very complex, yes. but it's, it's interesting. So I actually had to have two surgeries to place the device on my stomach. So, and I do have like surgical scars. They're kind of small, but you can like definitely tell. But yeah, so. Through your stomach. That's how they did the surgery. Yeah. They made two incisions on the side of my belly button, probably like a couple inches, like on both sides. And then um, they inserted the string uh, through the vaginal part. It's kind of hard to describe. I haven't talked about it in a while. But um, they would crank the two side because there was like knobs. So every time they would crank it, it's like the ball would go up through the, the vagina. Wow. Yeah. And what, what's the recovery time on that? And did your insurance cover any of the cost? Uh, the recovery, I was in the hospital for a week. Actually, one of my incisions got infected. So they had me stay for a couple, you know, more days, whatever. But, I mean, it was fine. I mean, all I think it took about a year to, like, fully heal. Oh, probably, like, six months. But I had to also dilate for another six months. But all together for a year. And luckily for me, my dad was in the military, so we had TRICARE. So we didn't have issues with, you know, insurance. And like we had discussed, too, it's really sad. But, you know, you have some insurance companies that consider MRKH a sex change. When essentially, like... Yeah, because it's like we're biologically women. It's just that it didn't form. So for me, I think my surgery, just kind of guesstimating, might have been about 40000 And we only paid like less than 100 bucks. Like my dad was on it. So I was just blessed in that area. But some women can't get the surgery because it's considered a sex change. Right, and they won't cover it. So, I mean, I know some girls, they do GoFundMe accounts. They get money from their families. It's, Yeah. Dating life. So let's talk about dating life. So you've uh, been diagnosed, you've gone through surgery. Um, how do you approach dating and have previous partners of yours been supportive um, after, after or if you did tell them that you had MRKH? Um, for me, I try to wait a couple, maybe months before I do tell them. I've had guys where I've told, you know, a week and two months then. I think it just depends on the connection as well as the maturity. But for me, dating has always been difficult. It was worse when I was younger because, of course, like I'm younger. I'm still trying to find myself. And I think my approach as far as how I explained it was a lot you know, just to take in just emotional and I would cry about it. And, you know, of course, too, it's like I was freaking a guy out because <laughs> I'm emotional and I think they're going to want to, you know, be with me or whatever. So my approach now is just to get to know the guy. And I think well, like, what's really interesting to me is that the older I've gotten, I realized that when I tell guys, they're just really cool with it. If anything, it just comes down to how you tell them. Mm-hmm. You know, but I really, as far as supportiveness, like it was one guy in college, he was studying pharmacy and like, he was the sweetest guy ever. I remember we had like a little car talk because mm-hmm. I know car talks and pillow talks are like the best time to tell a guy anything. Yeah. It's FYI. So, <laughs> so we had a car talk and it was just awesome. And I told him, and I remember the next day, you know, cause of course he's studying like the body and, you know, pharmacy, whatever. So he legit like sent me links and we were talking about my condition. He was telling me things about my case I didn't even know. 
Wow. So that definitely meant a lot to me. So he was supportive for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Picking up the pieces. So let's talk about now you've gone through, again, your diagnosis, you've gone through surgery, you've uh, been out dating, and now you're to the point where you're like, okay, well, I'm going to start a support group uh, for women, for Black women specifically. How did that come about and how did your parents react to it? And um, I also want to touch on, you mentioned being attacked on social media by a white woman who wanted to be included in your group. Uh, so let's touch on that some. Um, yes, I actually formed the group September 6th of last year. I was diagnosed at 18, so I'm 28 now. That's 10 years. And it's really sad because in 10 years, there's literally no research, no support. There's like nothing for black women our age. So I remember actually going to a conference two years ago. I met another young lady there. She was black as well. And I remember she just kept crying. And I'm just like, sister girl, like, dang. But I was the first black woman she had ever met. So I remember it was me and her. We're in a room full of other women in my cage. You know, we're the only black ones there. And, like, we're both just crying, looking crazy. And I remember one girl, you know, saying, like, well, if there's no support groups, why don't you, like, create one? So when she said it, it kind of, like, hit me like a ton of bricks, like, for lack of better words, because it's just, like, you're right. But it actually took me about two years to muster up the courage because, like, my whole thing was, you know, if I create this group, I'm going to be accountable for the women. I'm going to be a leader. Like, am I mentally and emotionally ready for that? So I remember just talking to um, a friend of mine, and we had talked about it before, but she didn't want to, like, you know, pressure me to doing it. So when I told her, she was just so elated. Um, the group was on Facebook. It's called Sisters Surviving Infertility. And it was just great. Like, my parents were proud of me. Just seeing how far I've come because it wasn't a moment in time where, like, you could talk to me. I would not cry about it. I mean, I would be bawling because it's just, like, people think that it's just you can't have children. But it's like, no, you know, you got to go through the surgical part. You question your sexuality, your identity, your purpose in life. Because I feel like our society places so much value on you know, motherhood and being a wife. And, you know, luckily now I feel like our generation is starting to challenge that. Yeah. But you just go through so many different emotions. So um, kind of winging it back to, or bringing it back in, I created it on Facebook. I didn't have any, you know, like big announcement. I was just like, hey, y'all, here's my group. It's for black women. It's something that's needed. So I definitely like approached it and that whole thing of it's a need because like I said, like, and I tell people all the time, like for me, my journey was like, hard like everyone else's but I didn't have anyone to look up to mm -hmm. and representation matters because I feel like had there been a black woman in the spotlight or at least just confident on social media I would have been able to gravitate toward her exactly so you know so as far as the attacks I remember I posted it in this one particular um support group and it's like you know all races ages mm -hmm. you know girls with it fathers mothers whatever and so I was like literally being attacked. Like that's the only way to put it. Like, and it was like really funny to me because like it was two white women in particular. One was married to a black man and then one had two black children. Mm -hmm. So I'm dumbfounded because I feel like you have black people in your, your intimate. <laughs> right. Like you have black people in your intimate circle, but she don't see the need for this. Like the hell. So 
yeah, that went on for like a couple hours. It was deleted. And then I posted again about it. And I explained my experience with it and to make them look like assholes for it. And people were like on board with it. So in all, I have over 70 members. I have members in like Africa, all over the U.S. I think I have one girl like Brazil. So I definitely plan on sometime this year or just like moving forward. I want to do like a foundation, a nonprofit. So this is like the... I guess you can say the foundation for something like bigger than just support group. Yeah. And you've had a lot of support. You mentioned like how your parents, you know, full on supported you and how your mom came to one of the events with you. And that was the first time you saw her like really show emotion or even felt guilty about you having uh, the disorder. Can you just share that a little bit? Because I think a lot of times we don't get to see, our parents' perspective, like they suffer with us, you know? Um, so just talk about that for, for a moment. You know, and that's a good point. They really do suffer. And I feel like for me, like my heart does go out to moms. I was actually invited to speak at a conference publicly about two years ago. My mom came with me and um, it was one mom there and she was just so sweet. Her daughter was in college. So um, I was the only black woman there. I was the youngest one to like, you know, as far as like speaking wise. And she asked my mom, she said, you know, how did you get through it? Those simple words. And my mom literally just almost broke down. Her mom's not a crier. So you can just like feel her heartbreak in that moment. And I looked over and I was like, oh my God, like I never considered her feelings because I didn't know how to. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that I was trying to be selfish, but it's like, when you're going through something like this, you're worried about yourself. (laughs) Yes. And how am I going to get through it? And, you know, and you just go through so many different transitions and trying to like love yourself. And it was just so much. But for me, honestly, like the most negativity I've had on my journey was honestly like the women, you know, attacking me about the support group, but I've never had any negativity at all, honestly. And I've heard girls like, have some horror stories and honestly like I don't know (laughs) I do plan on you know going publicly like you know talking about it on television sometime this year so I'm gonna have more exposure yeah so I don't know maybe I'll have like you know those moments but I've just been blessed where no one's really said anything like you know sideways yeah Yeah. living my best life So now let's talk about where you are now and how we know you're shedding light on this disorder. And for you personally, because you've had the surgery, I know you mentioned that when the time comes, you can uh, go through and use a surrogate um, and still build your family. Um, That's what you decide to do. But just share like some key things that you want other women to know who are in the same situation or are going through the same situation that you've had to go through. Let me think. It's so much. (laughs) I think my biggest thing is that, like, don't allow MRKH to define you. Mm -hmm. I feel like we do that so much because it's very traumatizing. And I feel like, you know, you have the initial stage when you're diagnosed, you have the acceptance, you have all the other things in between. You know, you have that phase where, you know, you're deciding if you want to have children, how you're going to have children. Mm-hmm. Just live your life. And anytime I get online, I post about anything MRI case related. I don't ever talk about the bad things because, you know, we all need to see that light. Yeah. 
another thing too that I did for years, whenever it came to my cage, I feel like I secluded myself. Like in college, I had friends, I was sociable, you know, I was studying journalism, I was part of the newspaper and I was producer and all of that with our, our newscast. So mm-hmm. I was out there, but people didn't know me because I felt like a freak. I felt like people just knew my secret and if they knew, you know, they were going to tell and, you know, I was trying to protect my heart. But I always tell people, feel your feelings. Yeah. You know, for me now, I still get down. It's not as often. But, you know, when I do, I definitely give myself a whole day. I just cry. Mm -hmm. I journal. I pout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just do what I have to do. Because, like, for me, having all of that, you know, boiled up inside of you, it's not good. I remember for me, like, I cope through drinking, you know, self-harm. So realizing that it was literally eating me inside out. That's when I was like, I need to do something about this. And I think that's the biggest deception is that we, the deception we tell ourselves is that we have to be alone. You know, we don't want other people, you know, to know what's going on with us. So then we are literally by ourselves. And that's when, you know, depression and other things can start to creep in. Uh, So I think it's so important, uh, the things that you shared. How can people find you on social media if they want to be um, or join your support group or even if they want to know more about MRKH? Um, yes, it's B Natural 13, and that's the letter B, and the natural N A T U R A L 13. And then um, the group name on Facebook is Sisters Surviving Infertility. And it is like, you know, a private, you know, closed group. It's only set for women who have MRKH. So that's like definitely like how you can find it. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I'm Sinhara Eastman, and thank you for listening to the Black Girl's Guide to Fertility podcast. You can stay connected with this movement on my website, on Facebook, and on Instagram. And if you haven't already, please join my mailing list at blackgirlsguidetofertility.com or on sanharaisman.com. And be sure to go to my Black Girl's Guide to Fertility channel on YouTube to check out my new web series.